Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm excited today to welcome Emma Dawson. Lovely to have you here, Emma. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be with you. So firstly, what I'll do is I'll step through Emma's impressive bio um, and then we'll ask Emma to join the conversation and share a bit about herself. So excuse me while I look down and refer to some of that just briefly. So Emma Dawson is Executive Director of Public Policy and Think think tank per capita. She's worked as a researcher at Monash University and the University of Melbourne in policy and public affairs for SBS and Telstra, and as a senior policy advisor in the Rudd and Gillard governments. Emma has published reports, articles, and opinion pieces on a wide range of public policy issues. She's a regular contributor to Guardian Australia and the Australian Financial Review. She's a frequent guest on various ABC radio programs nationally and an occasional panelist on the drum on ABC. She appears regularly as an expert witness before parliamentary inquiries and often speaks at public events and conferences in Australia and internationally. Emma is the co-author of Per Capita's landmark report, Measure for Measure, Gender Equality in Australia, and co-editor with Professor Janet McCalman of the collection of essays, What Happens Next? Reconstructing Australia After COVID-19, published by Melbourne University Press in September, 2020. So Emma is married with a seven-year-old daughter, juggling homeschooling like many of us through this period of time. And today we're going to focus on my very dog-eared copy now, Emma, of Measure for Measure, Gender Equality in Australia. So welcome to the conversation. And I'd just love to ask for people who haven't come across you before, which might be difficult given all the places you've been appearing, but for those who haven't come across you before, tell us a little more about yourself and your passion and what drives you. Thanks, Melissa, um, and thanks for including me in this terrific series. Um, so my passion really is um, better public policy, better outcomes for people that will drive a more equal society in which everyone is able to realise their full potential and is offered um, the same opportunity to succeed. Uh, so my career has been a fairly um, windy one. There hasn't been a, a direct path from A to B at any point in time, but it's really been driven by that desire to see um, good research and um, uh, policy development and really rigorous evidence-based policy put to the use of making Australia and the world, but primarily I'm focused on domestic policy, making it a better place to live for our children and our grandchildren. Um, and that means everything from tackling the urgent crisis of climate change uh, through to thinking about how we can more um, equally distribute the, the shared prosperity that we have as a wealthy nation um, and what are the settings that are needed to make sure that um, everyone in future has the same opportunity to build a good life in, that, in a great country as, as we've had in the past. 
Where did that passion come from? Like what's the why Sorry. behind all of that? Um, what's the why? Um, I don't know. I was raised in a fairly um, politically engaged family uh, and grew up um, with those conversations going on around the dinner table all the time, um, around uh, we came out from England when I was very young, uh, emigrated from the north of England into, um, and I don't remember this, it was well too early for me to have memories of it, but arrived in Gough Whitlands, Australia. Okay. Um, and my parents were, you know, instantly um, very engaged in, in, pub, in, in what was happening here, uh, having come from quite a um, a working class but progressive politically background in the UK. Um, and I think that I grew up for the first 10 years we were in Australia, we were in the Latrobe Valley in, in Gippsland in Victoria. Um, and then we moved um, to the city uh, in my teenage years. Um, and I think it was partly, partly having had a um, Catholic social justice background. I went to Catholic school um, and was very informed by that, that kind of thinking but also just more generally and my father isn't Catholic um, just more generally about um, what had happened particularly after the Second World War coming from the background that I came from in the UK which had been a very working class community um, and what was done after World War II in America in the UK in Europe in Australia to really build a strong middle-class society and as I um, grew up uh, in Australia, I was, you know, really my formative years were under the Hawke and Keating government, which was quite a progressive reforming government. And I kind of thought that was the norm. Um, and then as I got older and saw a lot of the achievements that we had made um, in those 40 years since the Second World War, um, start to be really wound back a little bit. And, and I saw things getting harder um, around me. Uh, then that sort of led to me maintaining I guess a real passion for um, for how we can address that and what the sensible and measured and um, well-researched approaches are to to important public policy debate so I'd always had I've always been very interested always been a political nerd you know I was watching uh, listening to Radio National and watching Insiders in my 20s and um, I didn't work directly in the field until my 30s but um, having studied you know women's studies and feminism and post-colonial studies and other things at university um, all of my work was very focused on that kind of uh, talking to people community community-based work and then thinking about how that translates into international and, and state-based policies what a gift to um, you know have had that sort of background and family who kind of spoke about all of that and questioned all those things. Um, you know, I think that's such a gift for for building sort of critical thinking skills. Yeah, for yeah, it is, and we were really encouraged to question things. You know, so my dad um, and mum would if we came home spouting some new idea or ask, you know, ask us to think about, well, why, why do we think that? Or mm. um, where have we got that information from? Have we questioned the assumptions behind it? Um, and I think particularly um, being raised in that tradition of going to a school that asked us to think about social justice, but then coming home um, to my parents and my dad in particular saying, well, why, why should we do that? If there was no God, you know, telling you that's the right thing to do, what's the other reason to do that? What's the humanist reason to do that? Um, and we weren't, you know, we weren't a particularly wealthy family. We were very comfortable um, sort of middle-class life here, which again was the result of the, 
the opportunities my parents were given um, after the Second World War. Um, and we certainly didn't know anyone, you know, we were immigrants from the UK, but still didn't have kind of networks of people that were, were connected to that world. Um, but it was very much, I think, uh, that was beneficial for me because my parents and um, the way I was raised really encouraged me to think, well, there's nowhere I shouldn't be. There's no space mm. I can't belong in. There is no sort of sense of there being a hierarchy or, or deference to, to people that, you know, should, should work in those fields. So I never kind of realised that most people do so by having an entree of some sort. Um, mm. I think that was actually quite helpful to me being quite persistent about the work I wanted to do. Did that perspective change at some point? So having been raised with that, I can be anywhere and I can do anything and, and those sorts of things, did that, did you, did you experience anything different along the way at all? Um, not as much as some others. And I think perhaps because I was so oblivious to that kind of hierarchy um, that I just barged in um, and probably didn't notice if people were looking askance and thinking, well, what does she think she's doing here? But I think like all women, um, as you age, you experience different reactions and different um, people have different objections or encouragement to you doing what you want to do. So as a young woman, like a lot of young women, I was um, encouraged. Um, uh, I probably didn't realise the extent to which I was um, being given certain opportunities for reasons that might not have been anything to do with merit. Um, I don't think that happened a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I think as you get older and you do realise that the world is skewed against women's participation at some of those higher levels, so yes, that started to come home to me. Mm -hmm. um, but rather than feel affronted or intimidated by that, my natural reaction was to be outraged by that and to mm -hmm. push harder. Um, because I simply hadn't been raised. My, well, I have a. I only have a sister. Um, my father was a kind of. He wouldn't have called himself this in the seventies, but he was a very prototype feminist male. So we weren't. It, the idea that we couldn't do whatever we wanted, or be wherever we wanted, or or contribute in whatever way we wanted, just wasn't entertained at home. Yeah. Um, and that sort of I I think gave me as I've often joked, the confidence of a mediocre white man. You know, you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. So it did strike me as I was getting older that, oh, people are reacting to, you know, me throwing a, an idea in that, that's not orthodox or hasn't come um, from the approved background. But it, it, never, it never stopped me. Um, it never stopped me trying. But that's not to say that there weren't, you know, there weren't times yeah. where I felt, well, I would have been given that opportunity if I were a man. Um, so, Emma, um, you know, the the genesis for, well, genesis for some of this came about because um, I'm just absolutely passionate and fascinated by leadership, but also by looking around and thinking um, it, it feels like we've stalled in the area of gender um, in terms of movement of females into leadership roles. And I wasn't really sure about what might have been kind of driving that or why that was the case. And so that was part of the genesis for starting this series. It was also because sometimes I'm asked about um, helping females find their voice and, and um, those sorts of conversations. And so as I've had the conversations, there's really been two clear sides to the discussion. There's been a structural side, um, and then there's been very much a mindset or an internal kind of side. And we will touch on both because I'm keen to hear about, you know, particular moments in your journey where perhaps you've 
had to overcome certain vulnerabilities or otherwise. But I wonder if we can turn our heads to the structural side and to a lot of the content that sits in the Measure for Measure Gender Equality report. Yeah. So if I just sort of gave you an open invitation to just share some of the key sort of salient points out of the report, where would you start? Um, I'd start by saying it can be overall quite a depressing read. Um, the report <laughs> shows that we're actually going backwards at quite a pace in terms of our gender equality scores on a, a number of international metrics. Um, hey, Australia. Um, and actually, we used to be a leader in a lot of this stuff. So, you know, in the 80s, um, we were one of the first countries to develop gender responsive budgeting processes. Um, we were the first... Uh, one of the first OECD nations to have that uh, driven through the uh, Anti-Discrimination Act that the late great Susan Ryan shepherded through Parliament. Um, and we really did have women's budget groups and um, the Office for Women working hard on that stuff. Um, it's been dismantled. The, the infrastructure that allows us to track and change and, and make those policy decisions through a gender lens has been largely dismantled over the last seven or eight years in particular. Um, so that's sort of the headline takeaway from the report is we were doing well and we're going backwards. But yeah. rather than it just be a very kind of dry data-driven report um, into the state of, of gender quality on those metrics, we wanted to look more deeply at, at why, what are the structural reasons um, that women are in a, even in a country as fortunate as, as Australia and, you know, white women in Australia are pretty comfortable by world standards. So, you know, let's yeah. get that on the table first. But why do we still have these imbalances? You know, why do we have the gender pay gap? Why do we have one of the lowest rates in the OECD of, of full-time participation in the workforce by women? Certainly one of the lowest rates of single mothers participating, um, growing rates of older women um, living in poverty and being at risk of homelessness. Why are these things happening? So we, we took a life course approach to the research and actually tried to track the stages and the, the, what we, um, we call sort of intervention points at which women fell behind and how that was exacerbated. So we looked at how um, gender discrimination starts very early on in life, um, that we treat little girls and little boys differently. Uh, we looked at the impact of that through the school years, mm -hmm. then into the beginning of working life. And then the part of the um, report that really was, um, you know, the, the part that I focused on, I co-wrote it with Tanya Kovach and, and Abigail Lewis on my team, um, but was that interaction between paid work and unpaid labour that I looked at mm -hmm. very closely not for the first time it's a it's a you know very well known field of, of feminist economic and sociological study um, but really tried to paint that in an Australian context so looked at a lot of great research from people like Ray Cooper at the University of Sydney Barbara Broadway the University of Melbourne to kind of pull together the threads of how um, the impact of the devaluing of women's work, whether that be unpaid in the domestic sphere or low paid in the paid sphere, mm -hmm. really contributes to that lifetime disadvantage. And then we tracked that all the way through to retirement and sort of showed that, well, this is why women are more likely to retire in poverty in Australia than men. Um, it's a lifetime of little things that add up uh, over the life course to give us a significant financial um, disadvantage, a disadvantage in terms of our participation in the workforce, in terms of our health, our safety, our security. Um, and we also looked at 
you know, violence against women, the representation of women in the, in the media, leadership and, and those kinds of things. So um, we were attempting really to paint a big picture to say, well, this is not a woe is me sort of identity politics cry. It's a look at why 50% of our population is still not in 2021 or 2020 when the report was published, still not able to achieve their full potential, still not supported to make the same choices that men make. We hear a lot about women's choice. We hear a lot about women's women needing to lean in, needing to be more assertive, needing to be uh, more ambitious. Um, but actually the structural barriers to that are still very much in place. The structural barriers that hold women back from making those same choices, whether they're cultural, or economic and my research has shown that almost all of the cultural barriers that we think of as just the way we think about the world are actually entrenched in our economic settings as well so they are changeable um, but it takes a, a pretty big shift in thinking about our broader society before we're going to remove some of those structural barriers um, and one of the things I'm really passionate about is shifting the conversation away from what's wrong with women why mm. don't they lean in more to well what why is our society structured in a way that they're not able to um, and so if you think about it um, and I'm not in any way comparing the experiences but one of the great shifts in the movement um, for support and recognition for people with disabilities over recent years has been to say actually it's not my disability that's the problem it's the way the world treats me and my disability and so it's not women that are the problem in terms of us being held back it's the way the world treats gender and treats the differences between gender and all of those settings structural settings are changeable um, with the right will and the right um, uh, passion to do so. Emma, so many questions and so many of the conversations that I'm having that tie in and pick up with points you've just referenced there. One that I just might quickly start with just to see if you've got a feeling on that. Like I love that, that, you know, the problem is not with women because so much of what I hear and I don't want to say men don't experience these feelings either because, you know, there are, um, you know, that is most certainly the case. But a lot of the research would indicate that women are less likely, as an example, to ask for salary increases. And when they do ask for salary increases, they ask for 30% more. I've got so many stories of incredible leaders who um, have sat back and waited for someone to tap them on the shoulder before putting themselves forward for job opportunities. And a lot of that comes from maybe comes from a place of you know people have labeled it sort of imposter syndrome or you know all sorts of different things like that but they all point to there being something wrong or something going on in here that's kind of telling us we're not good enough do you have a perspective on that I do um and there is something telling us we're not good enough but it's not in here it's out there um it's the way that that the world has been structured for millennia. And a lot of it's to do with our reproductive biology, to be honest. You know, women are the ones able to give birth. Um, biological natal women are the ones able to give birth. And so that has um, necessitated in a way a kind of, well, what's happened is that we've evolved this way of living where, well, you have to interrupt 
whatever work you're doing to have that child and raise that child. And we see that in, in the modern world as inevitable. Um, but actually, it's only since the rise of industrialization, which is a relatively recent phenomenon, right, um, that, those, uh, that that division of labor has become so entrenched. To some extent, it's there biologically. Women, um, natal women can give birth and they can breastfeed and men can't. But if you go back far enough, the work that was done in the home um, before factories, um, before people went outside of the home to work, it was a much more cooperative way of living. People would, uh, men and women would be involved in not only the care of children, but in the work that was done in the house, um, whether that be as a you know smallholder or a peasant or uh, working on a on a landowner's land or as a or as a craftsman um, women were just as involved in that and the division of labor between working outside the home and working inside the home is actually a construct of the industrialization of society um, the economic settings that then come with that uh, that value goods and services that can be exchanged for money on the market as the market rises as opposed to the services and domestic services that are done in the home and unremunerated leads to how we value things mm. um, and to what value is then placed on different roles in society um, and over time it becomes accepted that a man goes out to work and he wears a suit and if he's if there's a leadership position it's going to go to the man because he's got a family to support um, the partners at home uh, and that that you know ability to be there full time and to, to make work your priority and there's an unseen wife in the background taking care of all that mess is really very much a construct of the capitalist market system it's not a bad thing and actually gr the growth um, internationally that's been afforded by market capitalism has lifted millions billions of people out of poverty so you know I'm not I'm not here to attack capitalism mm. as such but it has created very rigid structures that have favoured a full-time male breadwinner. And actually the idea that women traditionally or throughout history have been at home just doing domestic chores, you know, that word just again as though domestic yes. and raising children is quite a modern and a very middle-class idea. You know, working-class women have always worked outside the home. Um, my grandparent, my grandmothers, for example, started working cotton mills when they were 12 years old. So um, that nothing is inevitable about the structures that we've put in place. So the thing in here that tells women, oh, you can't do that, is really it's years of conditioning and of... Um, of being told, well, someone has to look after the kids. You, you see it every day when a woman, a female politician is promoted or gets a, you know, significant high-profile role like Jacinda Ardern, who's looking after the children? You know, no one asked that to men. So these are, these are structural and social constructs that we then feed into ourselves because we want to be the best mum we can be. We want to be the best employee we can be. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't feel we can do it all. We know we can't do it all. And so women are constantly making choices and trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And men are asked to make those choices and trade-offs, slowly changing and younger men seem more willing and able to do that. Um, but this idea that, well, we don't ask for the promotion because we think we're not worth the promotion or we don't ask for the pay rise because we don't think we deserve it are more to do with the fact that we are saying, well, 
can I, if I get that promotion, can I really give it the extra five hours a week at once? What's going to happen to my family? Because mm. there's no assumption we don't have a wife, right? We don't have a wife. So again, these are gender constructs. There's nothing intrinsically in our psychology or in our, our biological makeup that makes us less willing or less inclined to be confident and outgoing than men. It's just years and generations of ingrained social conditioning that says, oh, well, if you do that, someone's going to suffer. Um, and women are encouraged and raised to think in that way, to think about well, what's everyone, what are everyone else's needs, how, they, how are they going to be affected if I make this choice? And, and boys and men simply aren't conditioned to think that way. Emma, you talk about the motherhood penalty, which is probably an interesting time to kind of throw that in there. And it's been interesting, again, in this series, when I've spoken to a number of people who um, were in um, traditional corporate roles, had their children, and then described to me that they exited that and in many cases have started launched very successful businesses in their own right mm -hmm. but they talk about all of a sudden there was just a values misalignment it's not that I didn't like the organization anymore any of that I just it just wasn't for me anymore yeah. um, let's talk about that yeah um, it's the famous line I think from Gloria Steinem when she was asked you know how do I get my younger female friends and relatives to think about feminism they don't think it applies to them and she said life will radicalize them and I think the great radicalizing event of, of many generation x and millennial women's lives has been becoming a mother because until that time um, certainly for women under 50 under 40 um, we haven't really and middle class quite privileged women haven't really experienced a big differential in the way they're treated in the workplace when they first start there are there is evidence that women do start on lower salaries etc but it's not in your face in your 20s you know and the the mother the data on the motherhood gap shows actually that men and women without children track very closely together in terms of lifetime earnings mm. when a heterosexual couple has their first child the woman's income drops and the man's goes up. Um, and that's because of the way that we perceive um, the, the burden of care as falling on women. So a woman with children is seen as less reliable. She's gonna need to be at home all the time. The man with children is seen as the breadwinner. He'll put in more time now. He's more, he's less likely to leave my company. He's less likely to change jobs. He wants that security. Mm. So again, those are the very culturally ingrained views of how we see parenthood. Um, that moment when a professional woman or a woman in a corporate job has her first child, often even more when she has her second child because mm -hmm. that's when it becomes a real juggle and I've, I've not experienced that but I see my friends and sister doing it. Um, they become quite shocked at how little support there is and how suddenly they're seen differently at work. They're seen as someone that's no longer on the career track, they're on the mummy track. Mm. Um, people are watching them for when they have to leave to, to do this childcare pickup or the school pickup. And so suddenly everything they that quite privileged women might have thought didn't apply to them in terms of the gender discrimination in our world suddenly hits them like the, with the force of a train. And they, they see their husband's lives not changing that much and their lives becoming all kinds of unmanageable, you know, um, how do I um, manage my duties and my actual desire to be a really present and involved mother. Mm. I mean, also remember that the expectations of parents now compared to my parents' generation when you could go out and play in the street on your own for three hours are just, you know, so much more intense. Um, and not only 
that, but there's a lot of, lot of evidence to show that at that point, even in really quite younger and modern couples, the, the split of mental labour, mental domestic labour falls more on the woman. So suddenly she's not only at home, either full-time or, or part and working or at home part-time, working part-time, caring for a child, but it's up to her to remember everyone's birthday in the family and to organise Christmas and to make sure everyone's school uniforms are ordered and ironed and who's got a new lunchbox and, and it's your mother's birthday, have we ordered some flowers? So all of that then becomes much more um, divided between men and women uh, in those heterosexual relationships. So I think... It happens to a lot of women in their 30s now um, that have had quite, you know, successful careers up until that point. And then they have children and go, hang on, this is not what I was promised. You know, I did not sign up for this. Yeah, why is my life suddenly blown up and yet my partner's just going to work as normal? Um, so there's a growing recognition as I think Gen X and millennial women in particular who were told from day dot, you can have it all, recognise that we can't unless men start giving up a little bit of what they've always had and we have a complete, you know, a significant rebalancing. And that, and in my view, that will be better for everyone because there's a lot of what women have traditionally enjoyed in that gender split. Um, you know, the absolute privilege of having that time with young children, seeing them grow, mm -hmm. seeing them become who they are, um, having time to, to think about something other than making money, um, that men would benefit from having more of that as well. So, mm -hmm. Emma, um, you know, it's, I, I'd love us to just think for a minute about amidst all of this, what are some tangible things that, that could or should take place? Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to throw a couple of examples in of um, people in this series who are kind of tackling some of these issues and, and taking some action. And one would be um, Jodie Geddes, who together with her partner created an organisation called Circle In. Mm -hmm. And Circle In is a, a platform for employers that really tries to improve the lives of working parents. So it's giving guidance to employers on how to help parent or how to help people navigate through those different life stages um, and prompting simple things like managers about when they should check in and, you know, yeah. very simple kind of things. Another one is um, an organisation in the US called Hello Sunshine, uh, which is Reese Witherspoon's um, media organisation and the CEO, Sarah Harden. And that was a fascinating conversation around you know, their whole philosophy is to change the narrative of women in films and to create opportunities for women to play different roles. And that really fascinated me because, you know, as you say, part of the culture and part of the structure, we've grown up watching things for years and probably not questioning what we've seen. Um, the idea of having some content that normalises a whole range of different scenarios um, is good. But I'll just say what... Where do we start? And you know, if we can't can't necessarily rely on governments to do all of it, but where do we start? It's a critical. It's actually a really important example. Um, is women on film and television, and how women are represented in the media, and that's one of the reasons we had a section or a chapter in Measure for Measure that looked at that. Um, it's that old line, you can't be what you can't see, right? Yeah. So um, while it can be dismissed as, oh, it's, you know, Reese Witherspoon and her wealthy friends and they make, how is that really empowering women? Um, seeing women 
different roles on television is and on film is really important. One of the biggest, my original background is in media and, and, and the impact of drama and stories on the way we think about ourselves. And certainly one of the biggest influences in shaping modern culture has been television, television out of Hollywood to a lesser extent out of the BBC for English speaking countries. Um, so how women are portrayed on TV and in film is actually really important in making that cultural shift. So you're seeing more productions where, um, you know, for example, um, Hilary Swank is the astronaut and her husband's left at home. Or uh, those things might seem trivial, but they do to a little girl. I think it was Whoopi Goldberg who said that the moment she realised she could be an actress and do anything is when she first saw a black woman on Star Trek, you know. So it does matter. Um, at the same time, a lot of what we are trying to change individually and culturally um, there needs to be a, a kind of better infrastructure for that and a better connection. So there are a lot of women doing a lot of fantastic things. Um, Circle In that you talked about is, I think, an important one because it's working with trying to shift the norms in the workplace and that's fundamental to how we change the division of labour. That stuff can't be legislated from the top. You know, you can't have a government say, this is how you will run your business and everyone, these are the standard working hours, no one can deviate from them. You just, you know, we've not had that in Australia, workplace um, laws have traditionally been a process of arbitration and negotiation between workers and employers. So having organisations that are seeking to change the culture of workplaces um, is really important. Um, but I think one of the critical things for me is, well, how do we think about that rebalancing I was talking about before? And both of those examples you've given have a role to play in that. We know that improving parental leave, um, making um, parental leave much more available, um, much more flexible, uh, more affordable, and critically that it's gender neutral and that it's available to both men and women equally as it is in some of the Nordic countries is a massive step um, in, in changing some of these cultural norms. There was a terrific report yesterday launched I by that. Georgie Dent and uh, Angela Jackson at Equity Economics that found you know, such significant benefits, not only to women, but to families, to the way that our economy works, to the way that our households, our households are happier. Um, if, you know, if children are better supported and if there's more of that parental leave, we know from studies overseas that where men in Nordic countries take more time, uh, more parental leave time, more time with their children, their marriages are happier. You know, they're women, they're, they're women folk, their wives, their partners feel less put upon. They feel that things are more equal. So there's less conflict in the marriage. And Nordic, Nordic countries actually do, I think that the male partner has to take some of it, yeah. right? Is that so it varies between them, but the best models are those in which, you know, um, there's a year's annual leave and you can split it up between you. But if the man doesn't use his portion, it goes. You know, you can't, so a certain amount can be transferred between partners, but then three months is reserved for, for the man. And if he doesn't use it, the wife can't. So that really encourages, okay, it's my time to stay at home and my partner's time to go back to work. And then the other more radical, people see this as much more radical, but it's I'll be on this soapbox for a long time, Melissa, change that we need to see in workplaces, really a reduction over time in what's considered a standard full-time week. So if you think about it, when the Industrial Revolution happened, people were working seven days a week, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day in factories. It was um, 
that arbitration process, the, the um, advocacy by unions on behalf of workers to say we should have a standard working week, we need a weekend, people need breaks. Um, as our modern life has become even more in work intense and so we don't have the luxury now of, of having a full-time at-home wife. Both parents are in the workforce. So per household, we're actually producing a lot more. You know, we're being a lot more productive. There's two of us out there contributing to the economy, and yet we've got even less time to ourselves. So a great way of thinking about that is, well, why did we stop at the eight-hour day if, if a household in 1975 was providing 40 hours of paid labour a week and in 2021 it's providing 70, um, then we should get some time back. As well as higher wages, we should get some time back. And if we gradually moved to a four-day standard full-time week, as is being looked at in New Zealand and, again, some of the Nordic countries, there are various companies in the UK doing it with no loss of pay, but what it actually gives us is more time to manage that work-life balance between men and women. So if it becomes accepted that full-time is 32 hours instead of 40, you're still going to have people that work more than full-time. You're going to have people that work less. But the, the cultural acceptance of what is full-time shifts so that men are able to say, well, I'm, I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm on on Fridays. I'm doing the school pickup. I'm doing the grocery shop. I'm doing the laundry. Um, and that evens out people's ability then to manage paid work with unpaid work and with leisure time and time as a family. So that's the big shift I think needs to happen over time. Okay. And um, let's turn our, um, our head to you briefly. <laughs> and, you know, points, have there been points in your career where situations have kind of made you feel particularly vulnerable? And Renee Brown would say that's brave and afraid at the same time. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, like all women in their 40s, I've had um, that occur a few times. So I think most obviously was after I had my daughter um, and then my husband was quite ill um, when she was about six months old. I was due to go back to work from maternity leave and couldn't because he, was, he needed care as well um, and found that there just weren't the structures in place to manage that. I was in a management role at an at a educational, a tertiary institution, um, yeah. and the, the ability for me to do that job managing the institute and support my partner and support my daughter just wasn't there. Um, and, you know, those were fairly extraordinary circumstances, but it was the first time I'd really run into there's nothing, there's no way of making this work, you know, and I felt that there was a, a lack of effort on the part of my employer to meet me halfway with that. Yeah. And that was a big turning point where I thought, well, you know, what matters? What matters here is the health of my family um, and I can pick, I can pick work up at another time. But I was in my, I was in my early 40s um, when my daughter was born, I was 41 when my daughter was born. So there was also a sense of, oh, if I drop out of the labour force now, how much harder is it going to be to get back in and sort of being aware suddenly of my age and of all of the responsibilities that I had outside of work which I hadn't ever had to think about I'd been a you know single career focused person right through my 30s um, and so that did sort of force some reappraisal for me and a recognition that you know what did I really want to do I'd come out of a job before having my daughter that I was very passionate about working in government um, as a policy advisor. The lifestyle was just not compatible with having a young child. Yeah. And then 
the work that I was doing after she was born was not as meaningful to me. And so that was a moment at which I stepped back and said, okay, look, how long can I afford to look for something that's going to be perfect? Um, and I didn't find that great thing immediately. I ended up taking another job that wasn't quite right. Um, and then a year later, my current role became available and um, that, that sort of worked out well. But there are constant challenges like that in life. You know, there are opportunities um, to go back to Canberra to work for a federal politician, which I just can't, I can't fit with my, um, with my domestic life and my personal life at the moment. Um, and those are always, those things are always disappointing that you can't take up every opportunity. Um, but I think it's enabled me to think more about and this is a very privileged position to be in, um, to, you know, carve my own path and say, well, I'll, I'll do this for a while and it might not be as lucrative or as secure, but I can afford to do that and it will give me more, more meaning. Um, that is quite a privileged thing to have, that, that option. Um, and, uh, and we're lucky that you're, that you're getting to do that and, you know, really focus on a, on a passion at the same time, making some really important you know, you know, research-based evidence about what's going on structurally in this space. Can I ask, as our final question, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like today and does it need to change? Uh, I don't think it needs to change. I think it needs to evolve. I think what it, what it looks like, what really brave feminine leadership looks like to me is leadership that is unashamedly different, that is unashamedly feminine, that is unashamedly um, aware of the kinds of restrictions and choices and structural barriers that women face and how they affect women and men and children um, and bringing that to your leadership. And so that means stepping outside the traditional concept of what a leader might look like and being brave enough to know that it's not just because this is your way of doing things and that might be comfortable, but to recognise what the benefits are for other people and to back yourself in on providing those. Um, but I think it also takes us, and this is where I'd say it needs to evolve, what I think the Australian um, female leadership community has done really well over recent years is, is you know, crack at that glass ceiling a lot. Um, there's a lot of work around... Uh, women in executive roles, around getting more women onto boards, into public um, appointments, into politics, into leadership positions. And those things matter very much because you need women making decisions at the highest level. But I think where we failed and a lot of what um, I'm trying to do with my work is to recognise that that's a fairly privileged group. It's a fairly, the top end of the, you know, income scale and, and of the access to power. And actually the women that really suffer from gender discrimination, um, from harassment, from um, inequality, are those much lower down the pecking order in terms of political power or income. And they're often those that do those jobs that were seen as women's work, um, the caring jobs, the food service jobs, the, you know, the unglamorous essential jobs that are still really underpaid and that those women don't have the kind of flexibility to work from home and pick up their kids from school and they don't, they can't afford, you know, the, the care that they might need to, to, to go back to school or do, you know, another, um, take on another shift. Um, and that there's real value in that work. You know, it's not unskilled work and because it's, has its roots in the domestic sphere, it shouldn't be dismissed as such. So I think really brave feminine leadership at this point in our journey, when 
you know, we a lot of younger women will say, well, we've won these battles. We're not regarded differently because we're women. It's it's taking on that really ingrained, insidious structural stuff um, that keeps the majority of people that are in those unrewarded, insecure jobs. They're not all women, um, but a lot of them are women. And if they're not um, women, then they're from similarly marginalised backgrounds in that they might be recent migrants or they're from very low socioeconomic backgrounds, people of colour and so on. So I think the role for brave feminine leadership now is to say, well, we're not done at the, we're not done busting the glass ceiling, but while we're, while we're pushing up, we need to remember to bring the, bring the women up behind us that are really, you know, the ones that are the most structurally disadvantaged. It's not a former, banking executive that's looking at sleeping in her car in her 60s because she didn't have any super and has no home you know and those are the those are the stories those are the um the real life facts that the fastest group growing group of homeless people in Australia now is women over 55 so brave feminine leadership doesn't shy away from that and says you know, we have to recognise that we're not going to have a truly equal society until we've rethought how we value what those people contribute to, to our society. And the COVID lockdown showed us that, right? It was the people delivering our food, stacking our supermarket shelves, providing the childcare, the teachers. They're the ones that we all went, wow, what would we do without these people? And a lot of them are women. So um, I haven't read, but I'm looking forward to reading the report on COVID-19, which seems like a lovely place to, to end our conversation. Emma, thank you for your thoughtful um, and considered responses. And thank you again for the report. Um, and, and I love your perspective on brave feminine leadership. I think it's really important. Thank you so, so much for joining the conversation today. Thank you. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing the rest of the series. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.